We've had uh, several vehicles in our families, big vans and little vans, and uh, several minivans. And uh, for the longest time, several of them have had this feature where you can see the distance to empty. You know, especially when the fuel level's getting low, and after that little warning light, usually the gas pump sign or whatever, ding, turns on. You know, you can flick over to that distance to empty and see the countdown, right? You know, it usually starts around 50 miles to empty or something. Uh, well, one of our minivans that had this feature uh, was, was handy, right? As soon as that little light would come on, and I'm, I'm a person who will, like, I only want to stop once. I want to make it most efficient, so I'm going to let it get as empty as possible and, uh, and then fill up once, right? So anyway, uh, you, you could probably see where this is going. It was, a, you know, it's about 20 miles to empty or something, and, you know, there's times where you've got to take the kids to some event and you don't have time on the way, so you're like, oh, it'll be okay. Well, this van consistently, and it seemed like every time we went to this one drop-off for our kids, we would pull away and it would start off at 20 and then just started this, you know, breakdown on the side of the road countdown or something. It would jump to 10 and then it would go 9, 8, 7 as we're driving away. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and of course I'm like, oh, Julia said I should fill it up. I should fill it up, you know. And, uh, and, we, and we would get to the gas station and it'd be okay. And uh, I always wonder, you know, how accurate are those things? Because one time we were in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, on that stretch of highway between the border with Missouri and like Oklahoma City. There's like nothing there. And it was on zero for a really long time. <laughs> Apparently we should have stopped in Springfield, Missouri and got gas, uh, but we didn't. I was driving, but we made it again. And so it just gives me such little confidence that when the thing says empty, it's really empty. And so, as we turn to the book of Ruth, and we start a new series here in this wonderful and short book, Lord willing, it's going to take a few weeks though, about five or six weeks, we'll be in the book of Ruth, but we, we face someone who feels like she's running on empty. Uh, the story starts off with a family of four, and there's some good things, and then some bad things, and some worse things, and it winds up being essentially... Naomi, and then her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who faced a lot of loss, and Naomi in particular, experiencing that great loss, feels like she's running on empty. And not only does she feel like she's running on empty, but that God is actively working against her. And so as we turn to this story, in Ruth chapter 1, I want you to see the kind of perspective that we need. Because what the passage says is that when we feel like we're running on empty, more often than not, we're not as empty as we think we are. And interestingly enough, we're never as full as we think we are when we think we're pretty full. And this overarching story has that message for it. And the, and the solution for us is to really find a, a, a rooted perspective that will see us through all of the challenges and hardships of life and even the good times of life and will connect us with a bigger story, a bigger picture. 
Because what happens here is that Naomi thinks she's empty because of all the losses she's experienced. But what God is doing is going to bring about something that is amazing, that will make her feel full of joy and wonder, but that which we, looking back, know it's even more than what she experienced because she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And what we know is that even more than that, the connection of her with Abraham and all the way down to Jesus, that God was using this woman in the midst of her hardships to bring about an amazing work. And we never know the future. So the perspective we need is that when we feel like we're pretty empty, we're probably not as empty as we think, and what do we need to look to? How do we deal with that? How do we persevere? Because that's easy to say, but harder to do. So let's find that here in our passage. We're just going to read the first six verses of chapter 1, and Lord willing, we'll, we'll cover more than that today. But we'll just start off to set the stage with Ruth 1, verses 1 through 6. This is God's Word. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, and now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then they both, Malon and Chilion, also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. This is God's word. O Lord, would you bless our eyes, our ears, our hearts with your word, working with your spirit, that it might be more than ink on paper, pixels on a screen, sound waves hitting our eardrums, but it might be life-giving, hope-sustaining, transformative truth and encouragement for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So after introducing us to Naomi's family, husband Elimelech, two sons, Melon, Chilion, and wife Naomi, in our beginning of our passage here in the first six verses, they all three die, except Naomi alone living of the four in the family. And for the rest of the story, from about chapter 1, verse 6, where we stopped reading, to about chapter 4, verse 15, the story shifts to focus on Naomi and her one particular daughter-in-law, Ruth. The book being named after Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law. 
And the story in and of itself is, is one of the great stories in all of literature. It's very well constructed. It's got great tension. Uh, we believe it's a true story of things that actually happened in a certain period of time with real people. And it's put together just in a way that's engaging. In and of itself, it's a wonderful kind of love story with tension and drama and suspense that has a really good ending, right? But that's not why it's in the Bible. <laughs> it's in the Bible, among other reasons, because it's also somewhat of, maybe it's you know, not the origin story of King David as we would talk about origin stories today, right? It's, it's the prequel to the story of King David. It explains where he came from, some of his roots, his ancestors, in particular, his great-grandmother. But it's more than that, actually. It's not just about explaining how King David came about and how in the time of judges when it was chaotic, like the Wild West of the United States back before the United States extended out west, where there was lawlessness and all kinds of crazy things happening, that, that it's more than that. Actually, it's more than how God brought about David. It's, it's actually a story that connects back to the original patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And especially Jacob's son Judah, one of the twelve sons that became a tribe. And his oldest son, Perez. Connecting that story here to Ruth and on to King David. But it's more than that story. And maybe you get sick of me saying this, but I... I think it's important to remind ourselves, especially when we read a really good story like this, that the story is, is above all of that. It's actually the story about God and about God's faithfulness, about how God works in the hardships and the struggles and the challenges and, and even just the, the desperation, borderline despair of this particular woman and an encouraging, faithful daughter-in-law. And in that relationship, what God brings about. One commentator put it this way, the book of Ruth portrays God as involved in life's ordinary affairs. Indeed, they are exactly the arena in which he chooses to operate. It describes how God works through, not despite, the everyday faithfulness of his people. That God is at work and that no matter how empty you feel, you're more full than you think. No, no matter how full you think you are, there's still room for greater fullness for God's people. And what, what you most need and what the whole book of Ruth says and what I hope we'll see today is that you need each other. One of the emphasis of the book of Ruth is that God is working, and he's barely mentioned. He is mentioned in this book, but barely. And what he's doing is working providentially through the relationships that we see. Through regular people. Through poor people and more affluent people. Through foreigners and the people of the blood descendants of Abraham. That God's at work through just regular people 
and the choices they make. And he's calling us to kind of consider those choices and to include him in our mindset, in our perspective, as we try to just live everyday lives. And that we would do that in community, encouraging one another on to faithfulness in hard times, that the Lord would give hope in community. And so let's, let's, let's dig into that and see what it looks like, especially in this context of significant hardships, tremendous losses, even very real emptiness. First of all, with the emptiness that's in the promised land that we see in verses 1 and 2. There's, there's no food. There's empty fields in Israel, in the promised land. The, the food supplies are running low. There's empty bellies. There's empty homes as people move to somewhere else in the hope that there's food. Like Abraham hundreds of years before, who traveled down to Egypt during a famine. Like Isaac, who traveled to Gerar during a famine. Like Jacob and his sons, who eventually traveled down to Egypt in a famine. You know, that was a common scenario in those days, that you would experience famine and you would try to go where the food was. The same is true here of Elimelech, his wife, and his two sons. They head to Moab, which is uh, the nation kind of to the east and a little southish of Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River over there. East. Yes, east and south. They leave the promised land. The promised land during the time of the judges, when the judges judged, it says in verse 1. It's not clear if this famine is a, a particular judgment of God on the people. You know, they faced enemies that would come and, uh, and they would cry out to God and turn back to him. And God would raise up a deliverer, usually called a judge in that season. And they would follow him and say, we're going to serve you forever, Lord. And then like a minute later, they would wander away. And they would face some other hardships. We don't know here if this famine is a particular judgment of God. Um, it could be. It might not be. Either way, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging time in this season of Judges. If you've read through the book of Judges, you know that it's just a crazy bunch of stories. Now, one of my children recently was reading through it and brought up some part of it. And, and the older kids and I were just like... Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting book. Wait till you get a little further. And, and they were like, why? And we're like, oh, it's just, man, it's, it's a lot in there. In fact, it's, it's characterized really well. If you're in the book of Ruth now, just flip back one page or scroll up to literally the last verse of Judges, which is the book in our order of the Bible, right before Ruth, where we see in Judges 21, 25, it says... In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of a refrain, especially in the last part of the book of Judges. It's literally the last verse in the book of Judges, and it's right before Ruth as we've arranged the books in the Bible in our historical tradition. The Jewish tradition has it a little differently, but they're still together. What's going on there? You know, there's, there's this need for a king 
in the land of the judges. It's a desperate lack of leadership. So it's not just a lack of food. A lack of leadership is the context that Ruth is living in. And so they head to Moab. Interestingly, Elimelech's name means God is my king. Elimelech, God is my king. His hometown of Bethlehem means house of bread. So Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, is leaving the house of bread because there's no bread. You know, they're leaving the land that's in chaos because there's no king, even though God should be king. And part of what's going on with this book is very obviously explaining where King David came from and presenting sort of the solution through him and through Naomi and through Ruth, raising up a leader for God's people who would lead them into better times. But that's not the case in this situation, right? They're not there yet. So they head to Moab. They sojourn, a word that typically means be a temporary resident or definitely not a full citizen of a place. So they sojourn into Moab, leaving the place of the promised land that was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Leaving the place that God said you will dwell in houses you didn't build, full of things you, you did not put into them, uh, cisterns you did not dig, all those things. But at this point, it's empty of food. People suffering hard times. And it's a little early in this situation to draw very many conclusions, but just to stop right there and say, one of the biggest things that as we're reading a Bible passage like this to ask is, you know, how, how, how should people be responding? The text doesn't say whether Elimelech was doing something right or wrong. And I think it's too soon to judge that, if you can judge it at all. But to think through, what would I do if here in a place where I thought I had everything together, things were falling apart? Would I go to somewhere else? And it raises the question not only of how I would respond, <clears throat> but ultimately, what, are, what am I trusting in? And so think about that as we dig a little deeper, not only to the, the great emptiness and loss that's experienced in the promised land, but the greater loss that then this family experiences in another land. Verses 3 through 5, where the family kind of takes one step back and two steps forward. If you look at the passage there, we see that uh, they've, they seem to have found food, right? They don't seem to be starving. There's no mention of that anyway. But Elimelech dies. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi, Naomi's husband died, and she's left with her two sons. But then pretty quickly, it seems, we don't know the ages of the boys, you know, and how far into this uh, they get married. But then verse 4 says, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. The language seems to indicate that, that most likely the 10 years is the whole time they lived in Moab, not the time that they were married. But it seems like at this point, there's a the step backwards. You, Naomi loses her husband. Elimelech dies, but then she gains two daughters-in-law. And from just a little bit, we'll read about them later in chapter 1, they seem like pretty good daughters-in-law. They, they seem to be faithful. They're weeping at parting from one another. They care for her. 
And I just want to pause there, though, and say, you know, this is kind of life in a fallen world, isn't it? You, you, you get two steps forward and, and you wind up having a step backwards where things are bad and then some good things happen. You, you make progress and you also have some setbacks, right? That's life in a fallen world. That, that's the norm. That's not unusual that things happen this way. Setbacks are common. But then look, look at what happens. It's not just one step back and two steps forward. He dies and they get, she gets two daughters-in-law. But look what immediately happens after that. There's like two more steps backwards. Both boys, it says, verse 5, die. Both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. What it doesn't say, and which is clearly implied, is there's no other, there's no grandchildren. There's no children. There's no husband. There's no other men in the picture. And in those days, women did not survive well at all on their own. It was the nature of life in those days. They, they, a woman could not get by. She couldn't get a job. You know, none of that was going to happen. They wound up being utterly dependent either on their family of origin or on their husband. And so here is now a widow who seems to feel like she's past childbearing age and two daughters-in-law whose age we don't know and they've not only lost the father and the two sons but the opportunity for any more children, any more help. There seems to be no prospects for other men to come in and marry the women in a strange land far from home. You know, just think about those setbacks for a moment. You know, this, this, is, this is life in a fallen world also, right? Where you, you two steps forward, one step back. You know, maybe another step forward and three steps back. It's very slow making progress in this world. And it's very, very often that things wind up going backwards. You know, literally the physical principle of entropy, right? Things break down. My family's always on me because I'll, I'll, if there's a switch, I'll switch it, right? If there's something to push, I'll push it, and I just do that kind of thing, right? I'm like locking the doors, locking the doors in the car, just to be annoying and, you know, I, whatever. And it's always like, you know, that only has a limited life cycle. It's, you're going to burn it out. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's not yet. I'm just kind of an annoying person. It's one of my spiritual gifts. Okay, that's not really a spiritual gift. If it is, it's not, you know, Holy Spirit. Uh, So things just break down. It's hard to make progress. There will always be setbacks. Things don't just go inevitably onward and upward. That's one of the great arguments against evolution, by the way. It's like, what do you, why do you think things are getting better all the time? Do you, do you look at the world around you? Do you not see death and disease? We make progress. But then sometimes the progress even becomes worse, right? You know, AI is a wonderful tool, but someday maybe it's going to take over the world and kill us all, you know? What, uh, th this is the stuff of fiction, but it's also rooted in a reality that we have reason to believe things get messed up. If, what's Murphy's Law, right? If, <laughs> if things can go wrong, they will. That's, that's life in a fallen world. And so... 
one of the things that the passage is, is, is pointing to is this reality that you know, we need to pay attention to where we're putting our hope. As you look at, at Naomi's words, as she discourages the girls from going with her, she's, she emphasizes verse 9. Now, verse 8, as they head out, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, verse 8, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. You loved your husbands well. You know, may the Lord deal kindly with you. You loved me well. Verse 9, may the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. She kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. You know, the, there, there's a way you could view that that says Naomi's confidence is in having the girls getting husbands and finding rest. With them, and there's there's a reality to that practical reality, right? But what she's experienced is that she hasn't found that comfort and rest. God has taken away her husband, taken away her two children. And she even begins to feel like God is her enemy. Look at verse 13. She says at the end of verse 13, No, my daughters. It's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She's experienced these losses. And, and, and essentially communicates to her daughters-in-law, I don't have anything to give you but trouble. God seems to be against me. I don't have a husband. I don't have my two children. Later on, when she returns to Bethlehem, they will cry out and say, is this Naomi? Her name means pleasant. And she will say, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. The Lord sent me away full and I've come back empty. You know, the question in this text that it's drawing us to is to say, how do you reckon fullness what does it mean for you to be full? Where are you putting your hope and your confidence? Because in her situation, it's very understandable to say, my confidence is in having a husband. My confidence is in having young boys to take care of me. My confidence is in whatever. You know, where is our confidence? It's not to say we shouldn't work hard. It's not to say we shouldn't be practical and pragmatic about how we make ends meet, right? But it's to say, where is our trust and our confidence? Do we believe that just a little more money and everything's going to be okay? Just a little bit bigger house and we'll be good. Just a little bit better car, better job. Just a few more hours of work per week. Just a little longer of this season of, of not being around. Do, where is our confidence? It's very easy if we only look in the moment and don't take a bigger perspective to say, you know what, it's just a little bit more. I just work a little harder. But the thing is, those circumstances in a fallen world are never going to meet your needs. They're always going to leave you a little emptier than you want. And the fullness is never going to be as satisfying. You know, when you've achieved the goal, it feels good, and then 
Yeah. You know, how many successful uh, rock stars, actors, actresses, people in general, lottery winners, you know, how many of them have to ruin their lives before we realize, you know, maybe it's not just having more that will make us satisfied, that will make us feel full. Because there's always going to be setbacks. This is a fallen world. There's always going to be challenges and problems. It's very hard to sustain progress. So how do you carry on? How, how do you move forward? How do you persevere? How do you maintain hope in a world like that? You know, number one, you got to realize we're going to make progress and we're going to have setbacks. We're going to take a couple steps forward and we'll have some backwards, right? The house projects, car repairs, education, everything winds up that way. Career, church work, all of that works out that way. You, you're, you, you make progress and you have setbacks. So where do you find hope? How do you carry on? Naomi hears of some hope. Back in the promised land, and, the, and verses 6 through 13 talk about that. If you look just at verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, the, the faithful one, had visited his people in, in giving them food, that, that there was some hope that now there was food back home, that the Lord had visited. Sometimes that word means, you know, he's come and brought judgment. And sometimes it means he's come and brought a blessing. And that's the case here, right? God has given food. And so there's some hope. Maybe the circumstances are better over there. And the word return kind of resonates through verses 6 through 13. It's also the first time we get some dialogue in Ruth. And the story moves forward throughout Ruth, if you'll notice, with dialogue, with people speaking to one another. They move the story forward. And here it's, it's, that's the case. She departed, verse 7, from where she was, her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt kindly with me. So it seems like they pack up, they head out, and then Naomi says, Oh, by the way, guys, I'm thinking you should return back home. Don't come with me. You know, they pack up everything from the home where they were living and they begin to head out and, and Naomi says, look, it's better off for you to go back to your family. Don't come with me. And the language is, is kind of final. The may the Lord deal kindly with you is somewhat of like the opposite of a blessing. It's kind of a, a departure thing of saying, look, I don't think we're going to see each other again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Farewell. She says that to her daughters-in-law. Verse 9, may the Lord grant you to find rest in the house of her husband. May, may, she kissed them. They lift up their voices. They wept. Verse 10, they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's harder for me than for you. The hand of the Lord has gone against me. Don't 
go with me. I will bring you nothing but trouble. I can't provide for you husbands to take care of you. I don't even have a husband for myself to take care of me. I'm all alone. We're all alone. Go take the wise path. Take the safe route. Go back home where you have a chance of finding a husband, someone who will help you survive in this world. Go back home. Obviously, you know, no doubt, Naomi has been through some significant hardships, right? Just can't imagine loss of a husband, loss of grown children. She's got to be in a really hard emotional place. Grief, loss, overwhelming. And she can't see, you know, beyond the, 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 the distance to empty gauge for her is like zero, She's empty. She's there. Now, now we know, right, standing back from the story, we know what's going to happen. Right? I'm going to guess most of you are familiar with this story, and you know how it's going to work out. It's almost a fairy tale type of ending. It's like a kind of Jane Austen sort of story here where things work out just in, in wonderful and creative and amazing ways. And we see that it's actually God working it all together. And we know that. But in the moment, Naomi has no clue that that's the way it's going to happen. And brothers and sisters, that's the way we live our lives. You don't have a clue what's going to happen down the road. And when you feel like you're desperately empty, you're not going to see that there's actually way more fullness than you realize. You're not going to even sometimes believe that God cares. You're going to be in the same boat sometimes. That God's against me. So how do you keep going? Where do you find hope? You need perspective, right? You, you need a different view of things. And the thing is, in the moment when you're feeling empty, and even just in all of life, right, we never see in real time, very rarely do we see what's happening and go, oh, this is God working right now. You know, oh, this is God working together. I know why I just got uh, hit upside the head. And, you know, no, you, you don't know. You find out later, as one of our kids did, you know, we can say, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? We looked at their head and we saw there was a tick burrowing into the behind their ear, right? You know, we wouldn't have said in the moment, oh, that's why you got kicked in the head, you know? And it's kind of why you got kicked in the head, it's kind of not why you got kicked. But it's all providence, all working together, and we know that intellectually. But in the moment when you're empty, when you need another perspective, it's probably not going to come from inside of you. It's probably not going to come with changes in your circumstances because you can very easily uh, use confirmation bias to say, yeah, something worse is going to happen. What you need, most of all, is community. And it can even be a community as small as one person. That's what God provided for Naomi. And we don't have time to dig in the next few verses But what God gives her is, is, is just one person, a faithful daughter-in-law who says to her, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I will go with you. I'm committed to you, Naomi. 
Don't ask me to turn back. Where you die, I'm going to die. Where you go, I'm going to follow. And I think as you read the rest of the story, and we're going to dwell on this, Lord willing, next week as we look at what Ruth says to Naomi. But just this idea where she says, verse 16, Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death separates you and me. With that simple commitment and then the follow through, what Ruth is providing Naomi is just a, a relationship, a presence, a human being who is with her. Notice, notice that she doesn't say, it's going to be okay. It'll all work out in the end. Does that help you when you're in that bad place? You know? Yeah, maybe, depending on the person, right? But what seems to help most of all is for someone to just say, I'm with you. For someone to demonstrate a commitment that's an unconditional one that says, you know, I'm going to go where you go. I am not going to leave you. This is, this is one of the most beautiful things about marriage. If we understand it and we, we lean into it of that unconditional love for someone else. It's a commitment that essentially says this, which is what Ruth says to Naomi. It doesn't matter what you have to offer me. I don't care that God is against you. That's not a factor in what I am committing to. I'm going to be with you. Do you realize the power of that? Have you experienced that yourself? That, that you would have that unconditional love. That's the way we ought to be treating our children. Just say, I'm with you. Unconditionally, you're going to mess up. And I'm going to be angry about things you do, but I am never going to leave you. I am with you. We ought to say that to our spouses. That it's not about what you offer me. Today we view marriage as some sort of mutual benefit thing. And when, when the benefits run out for me, I can, just, I can just go. It's some sort of contractual agreement that's all about getting things even or whatever. That's not the way a covenant works. That's not the way God designed relationships to work. That's not the way God loves you. Because God is the one who says to you, it's not about what you have to offer me. It's not about what you can benefit me. God says to you, I'm committed to you. I'm going to be with you. And the, and the wonderful thing about that is, the amazing thing about that is, is that you know how messed up you are, and God knows you're even more messed up than you know. And God says, I'm not going to be separated from you. And for God, the holy God, to say that, for the one who alone is righteous and without sin, the one who is holy, 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 for him to say, I'm not going to leave you, is for him to say, I'm going to somehow be with someone who has messed up. I'm going to be with someone who has offended me. I'm going to be with someone who is filthy with sin and enslaved to brokenness and under the power of an evil one. And the only way he can do that is to come and take care of all of that for you. 
to be the one who takes the guilt and the shame and breaks the power of sin in your life. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he does do. That's what he commits to. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples, you know, and I will be with you. Why God repeats numerous times in the Old Testament, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And he calls us to respond to him. And the interesting thing is if, if we believe that, if we allow ourselves to trust that God, to look at the great history and the big picture of what he's been doing in the world, which is the reason that we have to trust him. If we gain that perspective and we continue to cultivate that perspective of moving beyond, you know, I'm empty, beyond the circumstances right now, to continue to lift our eyes, which we can't do on our own. We need people to come alongside of us. And if you're in a place where you're feeling empty, don't hear me saying, just look at God. Yes, do look at God. And... Look for people in your life that are drawing near to you and lean on them. Open up even more fully to them if they're trustworthy at all, if they've demonstrated love and concern. And if they're there with you as you are saying things that are just so challenging for them, if you are walking in depression and struggling like that, open yourself up. And if you're with someone who's in that situation, be ready to hear it. Be ready to listen. Be ready to say, I'm with you. If you say nothing else, just say, I'm with you. I am with you. I am with you. Because that's what your God says to you. And you've, you have said some things to him. You've done some things in God's presence that he has every right to just cut you off forever. But what does he say? I'm with you. I'm with you. And the blood of Jesus can cover all of that. I can give you hope. And it comes in that context of community. And I want to just briefly, super briefly, just see that, that perspective this whole book is aiming for. If you look, just flip to chapter 4. You know, the end of the story is, is Naomi, verse 16 of chapter 4, gets a child from Ruth and Boaz. And, and we'll talk more about what that all means. It's kind of weird for us today. But Naomi takes the child from them, lays him in her lap, and, and became his nurse. And the neighbor women in chapter 4, verse 17, give him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They, they make his name great, is the sense there. And, and so then they, Ruth and Boaz, name him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know, here, through all of her hardships and struggles and trials, because Ruth was faithful to her, it gave Naomi just enough hope to carry on a little longer. And as they, she kept her eyes open that God was maybe doing some things, she sees providential things happening. That, that Ruth winds up in a field where she, somebody takes good care of her. And that turns out that that somebody is a connection, that, that somebody who's related to the family and who will provide for them. And, and she works it out that now she's got hope in the midst of them. She gives some counsel to Ruth. And we'll, we'll go through the story, but just listen. The way you get to that place is one step at a time. It's with at least one other person. You know, the research says that just one other adult than the parents involved in the life of a child 
gives them multiple percentage points increase. I think it's almost like double their confidence in life, the reduction in anxiety. Just one other adult drawing near and saying, I'm with you. Yeah, you know, you're a crazy, messed up teenager or whatever. I'm with you. I'll listen to your crazy stories. I'm with you. I went to a funeral yesterday. The father of my best friend growing up passed away. I went to the funeral yesterday. And this, this man, my friend's dad, was a deacon in his church for decades. And, and he was like a mercy, compassionate guy. I didn't, I didn't know this. It's one of those things you go to funerals, you know, you're like, I wish I had known that. And you just heard story after story of, of his compassion for people. But the one that really got me was my, my friend's brother said that when he was in third grade, one of his classmates at the desk next to him was called out of class, came back, packed up his things and headed out. And, and he says, where, where are you going? He says, I just found out my dad died. Third grade, this kid's dad dies. And my friend's dad reached out to that boy in third grade and was a mentor to him for decades. So that my friend's brother said it was the hardest call he had to make was to tell that young man that his own dad had died because he was like a son to him. Can you imagine that? Just one, and just is so simple. I would never think of that. And he just reached out to this young man and stayed involved in his life. Did things like invited him to Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner. Sent him a birthday card. The life experience that young man had because one person reached out to him. Year after year, unbelievable power. I'm so thankful that the the example many of you said of sending cards and and notes to people when they're sick, of, of making meals. You know, these are the kind of things. That's what that does. It says, I'm with you. It's, you know, your food could be horrible, right? It could be just okay. But it says, you know what? No matter how good the food is, I'm, I'm with you. I don't want you to go through this alone. I'm with you. And some of you are more particularly called to come alongside and encourage people. Pray with them. Talk with them. Be with them. But I would encourage you reach out just even one person and and start with your spouse start with your children if you if you don't feel like you're there of saying just literally saying with that I'm going to be with you I'm committed to you if you're somebody who's struggling look for that person in your life Allow them to be there. And recognize that behind it is a God who wants us to know that He is with you. 
And in those circumstances, when you're reaching out, when someone is reaching out to you, hear the Lord saying, I am with you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, speak to the hearts of your people that we all might hear you saying, I am with you. Lord, may we hear it just in the depths of our being. May we hear it in the meal that shows up on our doorsteps, in the card, in the email, the text, in the phone calls. May we hear it in the smile, in the hug. May we hear it in the silence as we vent and someone just puts up with us. Because you are with us. And you've demonstrated it in the life of Naomi and Ruth, in the life of King David and Solomon, in the life of Jesus Christ, and the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the sending out of the Spirit into our hearts. We pray in your precious name. Amen.